So, a couple of years ago, in the uh, in the Booker family household, there was a, um, as there is every year, a nativity scene, as I'm sure there is for many of you. And um, for whatever reason, our two older girls had this fascination with the baby Jesus. They would like to, he was removable from the manger, so they'd like to take him out and kind of sit with him at dinner or, or do different things like that. And... Uh, I think a lot of times that some of the traditions around Christmas in our culture can easily trivialize um, the Jesus that we know and, and proclaim and worship. Um, I'd like to, uh, to, to read you something that, that the scriptures say in Luke 2 that would suggest that, that this kind of um, trivialization of Jesus is far from what the Bible imagines to be right and good for us. These are words from Simeon in Luke 2. He said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It sounds a lot more significant than uh, you know, a plastic replica of Jesus in a manger. Um, or try these words on from a New Testament scholar, which I think are very helpful. He says, Carols stir us, holy words inspire us, The golden glow from the manger warms us. A little religion at Christmas is fine, but that glow in the manger comes from the light of the world. It exposes evil and either redeems it or destroys it. The babe in the manger is far more than an object for sentimental size. He is the Son of God who must be accepted as ruler or confronted as rival. The Son of God who must be accepted as ruler or confronted as rival. As rival In the um, primary reading for Epiphany, which we celebrated as the church two days ago on January 6th every year, the, um, this, these two responses to Jesus as either ruler or rival are seen quite clearly. So there's a lot that we could talk about in Epiphany. It's a story. It's the story of worldwide mission. The fact that Jesus, the Messiah, has been made known to the world. So the, the reading from Ephesians 3 about the mystery that Gentiles and Jews are brought into one family under this Messiah. We could talk about um, Old Testament fulfillment. There's all kinds of that going on, even in this story. The reading out of Isaiah 60 that, that, um, that nations would come, would pour into Zion and bring their gifts, bring their gold and their frankincense. Or from Psalm 72, that the king who would take over David's throne, that, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed and that, that gifts from Sheba would be brought to him. These, these things are actually coming to pass in this story in Matthew 2. It's a story of God's faithfulness to his creation. But I want to focus on the, the, the idea of the response to Jesus for tonight. The, the response. Is he a rival in your life? Or is, is he the ruler over your life? Imagine, if you will, that you lived in, um, you know, uh, let's say Venezuela. And um, just to, to pick a kind of everyday sort of socialistic di- dictatorship. Um, so uh, Hugo Chavez, you know, the, the, the president of Venezuela. Imagine that, that, that into Venezuela walks these foreigners and they say, you know, we've come to seek out the king born, you know, the, 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 the king of Venezuela born you know, of recent, in recent times, that there'd be this, this sense of kind of shock on the old dictator um, about this news that had come to pass. And, and this is the kind of situation that's taking place in 
Jerusalem when these magi come from the east. And they go straight to Herod in Jerusalem and they say, Hey, Herod, tell us, where is this one, this child who's been born king of the Jews? Well, who was Herod? He's king of the Jews. But he was an imposter. He was a puppet king of Rome. He himself was an Edomite. He was an outsider to, in some ways, to the Jewish people. And and he had been propped up by Rome. And so when these foreigners come in and announce that there's a king who's been born and he's the king of the Jews, if you're the king of the Jews, you're not feeling so good right now. And so it says in verse 3 that Herod, when, he, when, the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him was troubled. He responds to this announcement, uh, which to him is a threat with trouble and with fear, and as does the nation, uh, or at least the city of Jerusalem with him. And so the question is why? Why does he respond this way um, to this announcement? And, and, and perhaps the, um, the answer is relatively clear, because the status quo in, in Jerusalem, which benefited Herod greatly, would be undone by the birth of another king. It would be undone. Herod the imposter, his life would be changed forever. His position would be overturned. His position of privilege and of power would be overturned. You know, kings aren't born to, to they're not born to kind of come alongside and coddle and encourage and you know, say, good job, keep going. Kings are born to rule. Kings are born to reign. Kings are born to take authority and to execute that in the world. And Herod knows this, and so he's kind of shaking in his boots a little bit. He starts to scheme, and if we read on in Matthew 2, we know that he does these, he takes drastic measures to eliminate this threat to his own rule and reign by killing all male children in Bethlehem under the age of two. That's how he responds to this announcement of the birth of one born king of the Jews. And, you know, this, is, this kind of response of threats, of rival, is, is very true, not just for Herod, but it's true for each one of us as well. Um, for each one of us, Jesus, yes, he's a savior, and yes, he's a friend, and yes, he is a counselor, and yes, he is a teacher, but above all, Jesus is a king who has come to, to rule over, to reign over his subjects. And so, here's the deal. For a lot of us, we have a tendency to be selfish. Maybe it doesn't define you, but it certainly does define me. I fight with selfishness all the time in my life. And the selfishness that we, um, that we have to fight in our lives ultimately is leading to, to protection of one thing in us, and that is control. All of, our, our, all of our, our movement towards seeing the world just through the lens of me, and so seeing problems in the world, seeing big issues and events are significant only insofar as they affect me. All of that ultimately is coming down to an issue of me and controlling my life and having sovereignty over my life and making the decisions that I want to make and doing what I want to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so this one who is born a king comes to challenge and to confront that idolatry that we have for control. If you go back to the beginning, this battle between light and darkness that starts to take place in the book of Genesis, fundamentally, Adam and Eve's move in Genesis 3, with the help of the serpent, is a move toward sovereignty, self-autonomy, rule of themselves, and a move away from being ruled by the king, by the God who made them, by the creator. 
So this fundamental battle is what plays out for Herod in front of all of us in Matthew 2, but it plays out for each one of us as well in our lives. And maybe Jesus has become that kind of you know, plastic thing in a manger instead of the king who rules over us and calls the shots and directs us and moves us. He comes in and he says, I'm king, and the status quo is going to change. Your life is going to be turned upside down. That's the way it is. There's no other option. There's no other path with him. So is he a rival to you in your life? Is he a rival to the way that, that you long to live, the way that you want to live, the way that you want to engage the world and think about the world and think about your own lives? Or on the, on the flip side, to the contrary, is he the ruler? And, and in this, we see a beautiful picture of these wise men, these magi coming from the east. Now, we don't really know who the wise men were, um, the magi. We, uh, we, we have some, scholars are divided on exactly what they were. It's quite likely that they were students of astronomy. They were astrologers. Back in the ancient world, people watched the sky. There weren't a lot of city lights around, so they saw the sky, unlike us in Boston. And they read the sky at night, and they discerned things from what was going on in the heavens. Um, and they, they, they could have been dream interpreters. They could have been magicians. They are sometimes referred to as wise men, as they are in this translation of the text. But... Um, They were people of importance, people of significance, people of learning. And they had read something in the heavens that led them to go searching. When the sky's order was interrupted, they discerned something that God was at work. And so they set out on a long and arduous journey from somewhere in the east to come and to find what the meaning of these events were. This journey was enabled by a divine light, literally by a miraculous star. There are certain kinds of explanations that Jupiter and Saturn had come close together in 7 BC that might give some explanation, at least to the original rising of this star. But certainly no no scientific explanation can explain the fact that the star that they had seen when it rose, verse 9, went before them until it came to rest over the place. That is a miraculous event. And so they were guided in their journey by this divine light that was shining for them. And they sought this king, this child king, with joy, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they sought to to worship him, verse 2 and verse 12 as well. And that worship, which uh, this word kind of has two meanings in the ancient world. Obviously, it can mean worship, like the the thing that you only give to God um, in ancient Jewish culture, but it also could mean paying homage to a ruler, to a king. And certainly I think Matthew in this use of this word is giving us both of those meanings here. It's interesting, Matthew's gospel begins with these men from from the utter ends of the earth coming to Jerusalem to worship the King Jesus. And it ends with these men in Jerusalem bowing down in worship to the King Jesus and being sent to the ends of the earth to make disciples. There's this great bookend there of what's going on in the book of Matthew. And so these, um, these magi come and they lay themselves down at the feet of this one born king of the Jews. The giving of gifts in the ancient world was actually a way of making political alliances and of bringing yourself in submission to another. So here they bring these gifts, these valuable gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they lay them down. Now often the, 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 the gift, like when 
you know, two great figures. It was often like a daughter or something like that. It's not, not the case here. But there were these gifts that were given as a way of, of forging this alliance and coming under allegiance to this new ruler and king. And that's what they do here and represent for us a different way of approaching this Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, okay, so I've got that down. Like, I know Jesus is supposed to be my ruler, not my rival. And I struggle sometimes with the fact that he is my rival because I sort of want to live life my own way. But I'm, I'm with you and I want to follow him as ruler. But I want to point out one more thing that's going on here in this text before we, we just conclude that we've got it all together. There's an outsider-insider contrast going on in Matthew 2. And I'm speaking to you now as a group of insiders. So this is going to be a gentle warning to a group of us who might consider ourselves, if you do consider yourself a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that you're an insider to his family. In the Gospels, it's most often those on the inside who push Jesus away as a rival. I mean, Herod and all of Jerusalem, they were the ones, at least all Jerusalem, that had inherited the promises that supposedly had this messianic hope for a king to come and to, to, to rescue them from Rome. But they're the ones who are troubled, and they're pushing him away. And this pushing of Jesus away by the insider actually climaxes at the cross, where the leaders of the Jewish nation actually put this one Jesus who was claiming to be a king up on the cross and say, we don't want you. You're not what we thought that you would be. It's the ones actually who have a claim on God, who say, you know, I've got some kind of special claim upon you, God, who tend to push him away as a rival when he shows up in ways that don't meet their expectations. On the flip side, it's those who are on the outside who often recognize who he is and actually push with all of their might to reach him. The journey that the Magi took was not an easy one. It likely lasted for months across deserts. You know, they didn't jump in an air-conditioned Mercedes-Benz and get to Jerusalem. It was a long and arduous journey. And that we see that here happening with, with them coming and recognizing Jesus. We see it with the, the woman with the uh, jar of perfume in Luke 7 or with Zacchaeus in Luke 19 who climbs the tree, these one, this one rejected, or the blind men at the roadside in Matthew 20. Or the children in Mark 10 who were supposed to be excluded, who find their way coming in and recognizing. Or perhaps most of all, by the prodigal son in Luke 15, this one who had been rejected and was outside. Now seeing his, his plight, seeing what he had left behind, and now coming with all of his might to meet this one again. And to bow down before him and say, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. It's those that don't have any sense of a claim upon this one Jesus who find themselves bowing down and coming humbly and prostrating themselves before him and claiming him as their own. And that's what we see here in Matthew 2. So as we on Epiphany celebrate this worldwide mission of the world's true king, we have to see again our need for his rule to penetrate our hearts fully in our lives. Do we seek him as the Magi did? Where is that at in your life? Are you, are you pursuing this king? Or is he kind of getting the, the leftovers? Is he maybe almost a passing thought? Do we seek him with joy? Not as a means to an end of something else, but as an end in himself. Somebody that we long for, that we long to know and to embrace to worship, 
Do we lay down the things of value in our lives as a sign of alliance and allegiance and submission? What about your time? What about your money? What about your gifts? What about your vocation? Do you lay these things at his feet? Or instead, do we back away? Maybe play the part of the the follower of Jesus and and go to services and, and, and talk the talk, but in our hearts, are we kind of pushing away? Is there a little bit of troubledness when it comes to confronting Jesus and his claims as king, as the world's true king? Let me say this last thing, that unlike the, the magi in this story, we, we, we have the blessed privilege and position of seeing the true nature of this king on the other side of the cross. This one that claims worldwide allegiance, whose mission knows no boundaries, who has no, there is no human being who is not properly his subject. Instead of coming and demanding everything, comes in humility, lives in obscurity, and then embraces a career of, uh, of opposition and suffering and misunderstanding. So much so that when he's on the cross, the people come and they say, look, if you're really the king of the Jews, if you're really who you say you are, why don't you just command the angels to come down and rescue you? Man, if I was that king, that's what I would have done. You know? I'll show you. Do you see the difference of his kingship? In love to withhold what is properly his own, to give it up, to lay it down, so that you and I can actually come and embrace him. So that you and I can actually lay our lives down before him and know him, the benefit of him. Sure, yes, indeed, like Herod, our lives will be undone if we come to Jesus as ruler. But his life, his life is so much more. We can hold what we have and scrape by with the status quo, or we can give everything and find true life and live under this true king. I pray that that would be the way that we go. Amen.